One of the most exciting facets of life is seeing how God uses people to accomplish His work. God obviously could do His work without us. He could do it way better on His own. But He has chosen to use people. And the encouraging thing about that subject is the fact that the Lord uses all kinds of people. The Lord can take any person who is submitted to Him and use that person for His glory. There's no such thing as not being qualified unless you disqualify yourself by refusing to deal with sin in your life. 2 Timothy 2 talks about being a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master. That's a great phrase, useful for the master. If you are willing to allow the Lord to sanctify you, and if you are willing to do what you need to do about sin in your life, then you can be useful for the master. You cannot be underqualified. Because 1 Corinthians 1 teaches that God delights in using the non-intellectual, the weak, the base, the lowly, the insignificant, the unknowns, the nobodies for His glory. As someone has said, God is looking for fat people. Faithful, available, teachable. Fat people. A publication called Light put it this way. Longfellow could take a worthless sheet of paper, write a poem on it, and make it worth worth $6,000. That is genius. Rockefeller can sign his name to a piece of paper and make it worth a million. That is capital. Uncle Sam can take gold, stamp an eagle on it, and make it worth $20. That is money. A A mechanic can take materials worth $5 and make an article worth $50. That is skill. An artist can take a 50-cent piece of canvas paint a picture on it, and make it worth $1,000. That is art. God can take a worthless, sinful life, wash it in the blood of Christ, put His Spirit in it, and make it a blessing to humanity. That is salvation. That is the kind of business our Lord is in. Jesus makes sure that our past is a past that is past. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if, if, any, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. And beloved, that is what salvation is all about. Making us new creations who can be useful to the Master. But it doesn't stop there. Once the Lord has saved us, then His plan is to continue changing us, sanctifying us, to be more useful to the master. Here's another illustration of that truth. There once was a great concert violinist who wanted to demonstrate a very important point, so he rented a music hall and announced that he would play a concert on a $20,000 violin. On the night of the concert, the place was packed with violin lovers, curious to hear such an expensive instrument played. The violinist came out on stage and gave an exquisite performance. When he was done, he bowed and took their applause, but suddenly he threw the violin to the ground, stomped it to pieces, and walked off the stage. The people were horrified. The stage manager then came out and said, Ladies and gentlemen, to put you at ease, the violin that was just destroyed was only a $20 violin. 
He will now return to play on the $20,000 instrument. He did so, and few people could tell the difference. The point that he wanted to make was well illustrated, and the point was this. It isn't the violin that makes the music. It's the violinist. Most of us are $20 violins at best, but in the Master's hands we can make beautiful music. The Lord uses all kinds of unqualified people, doesn't he? And he can use you, and he can use me. One of the greatest illustrations of this fact, in my opinion, is a man who was given a privilege that only three other men in the universe have ever had. Only three others. This man was a failure in ministry at one point in his life. But once the Lord turned him around, the Lord gave him the privilege of writing one of the four Gospels. This man's name was John Mark, and we know his book of the Bible as the Gospel According to Mark. That's the book we want to consider in this study. But before we turn to the Gospel of Mark, let's get a little bit more background on the human author. As I mentioned a moment ago, there was a time in his life when Mark was a failure in ministry. I want us to look at that before we actually begin surveying his book. So turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 13 to begin our time in the Word. Acts chapter 13. This chapter records the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. Paul's partner on this journey was Barnabas. We want to pick up the story in verse 5. Acts 13, verse 5. It says, And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. The John mentioned here at the end of this verse is John Mark. That would be his fuller name, longer name. We know him better as Mark. He was an assistant to Paul and Barnabas at the beginning of this first missionary journey, but something happened. Notice what happened down in verse 13. Dr. Luke tells us, Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, that's Mark, John Mark, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Why did John Mark leave this missionary journey? Through the years, several suggestions have been made. Some have said that he got upset with Paul, because Paul took over the leadership of the team. Early on, it was Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. That's the way the text reads. But here in verse 13, it was Paul and his party. Paul was a natural leader, a gifted leader, spiritually gifted leader. And in time, he was the dominant figure of the team. Of course, this was by design of the Holy Spirit. He didn't usurp that. But maybe John Mark didn't like it because, we do know, he was the cousin of Barnabas. So it's possible that he was jealous for Barnabas' sake. Therefore, maybe he left because he got upset with Paul's leadership. It's one possibility. Others have suggested that John Mark left because of fear. At this point in the journey, the team was headed into the most difficult and dangerous stretch. They had to cross the Taurus Mountains, where there were thieves and robbers hiding out to jump on travelers. 
In addition to that threat, there were dangerous rivers and terrain to cross to get to where they needed to be. So maybe John Mark went back out of fear. It's a possibility. Another possibility is that he left because he disagreed with the emphasis on ministry to Gentiles. John Mark was a strict Jew who may have had a hard time with the focus of the ministry, the focus that was beginning to become dominant. Remember, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And maybe John Mark could see that things were headed in that direction, a Gentile-focused ministry. It is possible that he had assumed that the ministry would focus exclusively on Jewish people, and he did not like what he perceived to be a change in focus or direction. So that's another possibility as to why he left. Or maybe he just left because the romance of ministry had worn off. Maybe the newness was gone and he found out how difficult and discouraging ministry to people can be. So he left, decided just to go back to Jerusalem. We don't know for sure what the reason was. But we know that, we do know that Paul did not think it was a valid reason. We know that because of what happens near the end of chapter 15 of the book of Acts. So turn over a couple chapters to chapter 15, verse 36. Verse 36 tells us, Then after some days Paul said to Barnabas, Now remember, this was the, the, the core of the team, the first missionary journey. Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back... And visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. The tense of this verb indicates that Barnabas kept insisting on this. It's an imperfect tense in the original which describes continuous action. So Barnabas kept insisting they take John Mark. Verse 38 tells us, But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So Paul was just as strong on his position as Barnabas was on his. Whatever the reason for Mark's previous departure, Paul did not think it was a valid reason and therefore did not think it was wise to take him on this second journey. Now, it's very probable, very likely, that Barnabas didn't think it was a valid reason either, but Barnabas was willing to give John Mark another chance. Paul didn't feel like that was wise. Dr. Warren Wearsby put it this way, quote, Paul looked at people and asked, what can they do for the Lord's work? While Barnabas looked at people and asked, what can God's work do for them? Both questions are important to the Lord's work, and sometimes it is difficult to keep things balanced, end quote. Barnabas thought it was worth another chance to give John Mark another opportunity. Paul didn't. And I'm sure that Paul didn't think John Mark was useless to the cause of Christ, but Paul was probably thinking that missionary and pastoral work is too important to experiment with or play with or tamper with. So Paul and Barnabas could not see eye to eye on this decision. Verse 39 tells us, Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, 
But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. Now this looks like a tragedy, and in some ways it was. But you want to hear something? God even brought good out of this. Instead of one missionary team, the result was two. But the question for us is, how did Mark get back on track? How did he get things back together? Well, as you piece the evidence together, it seems that somehow, and we don't know how, but somehow John, Mark, got linked up with the Apostle Peter, who had a significant ministry in his life. After all, Peter knew how to minister to those who had failed because he himself had been there. God used Peter to have a significant ministry in the life of John Mark, and the result was that John Mark was moved by the Spirit of God to use Peter to write one of the Gospels. We know it as the Gospel according to Mark. John Mark was the human author of the book that we know as the Gospel of Mark, And the evidence is overwhelming that Mark used Peter as his primary source of information in writing the book. After all, Peter was an eyewitness. He was a part of what was recorded in the gospel account. So there's a great ending to the story. God is so good in his sovereign control of all things, in his his working of all things. The rupture in Acts 15 at one point I'm sure looked like a fiasco. And we don't want to minimize the the rupture there. But God brought good out of it in a number of ways. What a beautiful illustration of Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good, even our stupid mistakes, human errors, our faults, our frailties. God can and does use people like Mark. People who have failed in the past, but who have turned back to the Lord wholeheartedly. And when they do turn to the Lord wholeheartedly, they want to point people to their Lord. That's exactly what Mark does in his gospel. So let's back up there to consider its message. The key verse of Mark's gospel is found in chapter 10. So let's begin there, begin our survey in chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 is the key verse of this gospel. Mark 10, verse 45, records Jesus himself talking. And he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The reason why this is the key verse of the gospel of Mark is because Mark's portrait of our Lord is as the tireless servant of Yahweh. That is how Mark presents Jesus throughout his gospel. It seems that Mark's primary audience was the Roman population. The Romans knew all about servants because a huge portion of their population was servants or slaves. In fact, some historians estimate that up to one-third One-third of the entire Roman population was composed of slaves. So Mark presents Jesus as the obedient servant, the obedient slave, always quick to do the will of his father. In fact, the word immediately occurs 42 times in this brief gospel. 
42 times. Beloved, that's more than the rest of the New Testament put together. Jesus was always quick to do the will of his Father. That is how Mark presents our Lord. His emphasis is on what Jesus did, not on what Jesus said. Mark only records two extended discourses of Jesus, but by contrast, he records 18 of our Lord's miracles to demonstrate his power and his compassion and his work. So with that as background, let's go back to chapter 1 to do our overview of this letter before we begin our verse-by-verse consideration of it in the weeks and months to come. Mark chapter 1. Notice how Mark opens his gospel. It's quite a contrast to the other gospel records. Mark chapter 1 verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey, and he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Notice that Mark skips right over the genealogy of Jesus. He skips right past the birth of Jesus. Those kinds of things would have been unimportant to Mark's Roman readers. Remember, they just wanted to know what Jesus did. They didn't care about his genealogy. They didn't care about his birth. They didn't care about him growing up as an infant. All of those things in Matthew, Luke, etc. They just wanted to know, what did he do? What did he accomplish in life? So Mark jumps right into the events that preceded Christ's public ministry. He says in verse 9, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now that statement there, You are my beloved Son, that is a key sub-theme of Mark's gospel. He wants his readers to know that this humble and obedient servant is no less than the Son of God. He stated that back in verse 1. I don't know if you caught it. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark will reveal this fact in a number of unique ways throughout his gospel. Let me show you just a few examples. Look at chapter 3. And notice these ways in which Mark reveals Jesus as the Son of God. Chapter 3, verse 11. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. So Mark even records the demons affirming this reality. Look at chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 2. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwellings among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, 
because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Again, Mark records the fact that the humble and obedient servant is no less than the Son of God. Look at chapter 9 for another example. Chapter 9, this is when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration. In verse 7, we are told, A cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. God the Father, demons affirmed He is the Son of God. God the Father asserted, asserted that He was the Son of God and confirmed that. Look at chapter 14 for another example. This is Jesus on trial before Caiaphas. Chapter 14, verse 61, way down at the end of the chapter. Mark tells us that Jesus kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus himself affirmed that he was the Son of God. The demons stated it. The, the Father stated it from heaven. Jesus said it on trial. One other example is from an unlikely source. This is chapter 15. Turn over to chapter 15. This is at the scene of the cross when Jesus was crucified. Verse 39 tells us, so when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that, he cried out like this and breathed his last, said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. The demons stated it. The Father stated it from heaven. Jesus stated it when he was on trial. The centurion stated it at the cross. These are important segments in the Gospel of Mark. He wants us to see that Jesus was the humble and obedient servant but he also wants us to see that this humble and obedient servant is no less than the Son of God. Now back to chapter 1. So Mark has a primary theme, but he also has some sub-themes that are interwoven throughout his gospel. And we'll pick up on those, Lord willing, in the weeks and months to come. But look at chapter 1, verse 12. We are told, Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered to him. Now after John was put into prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Did you notice the word immediately at the beginning of verse 12? This is the way Mark's gospel unfolds. It is a crisp and fast-moving look at the life of Christ. Jesus is always on the move, doing the will of the Father, accomplishing divine purposes. That's Mark's portrait. In verses 16 through 19, Jesus saw Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Verse 20 says, And immediately he called them, 
And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they went after him. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and he taught. We're beginning to see Jesus on the move at this point in Mark's gospel. Verse 23, now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. But Jesus didn't wait around to hear about his popularity. He had work to do. He had the Father's will to do. You remember, he's always on the move. Verse 29 tells us, Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. So this gives you a good feel for Mark's gospel. Jesus is seen as always serving. But, please hear this. He was always on the move, always doing the will of the Father, always serving, but he never let himself get too busy for the essential things in life. So we are told in verse 35, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. He continually drew his strength from his father to be able to give and serve the way he did. Chapter 2 continues to describe the many things that Jesus did in his ministry. He granted forgiveness to a paralytic, and then he healed him physically. He called others to follow him. He taught and even contended with the religious leaders of his day. In chapter 3, he healed a man who had a deformed hand. He cast out demons. He appointed the twelve disciples. He contended with the scribes, and he called others to obey the will of God. This is Mark's gospel, just record after record of what Jesus did. What did he do? What did he accomplish? In chapter 4, he taught the multitudes with parables. And afterwards, he demonstrated his authority over nature by calming the storm and the sea. In chapter 5, he again cast out demons. He healed the sick. He even raised the dead. In chapter 6, he sent out the twelve to minister. He fed 5,000. He walked on the water. He healed many, many more people. Look at chapter 6, verse 54. Chapter 6, verse 54, it says... And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through that whole surrounding region, and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered, into villages, cities, or the, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. 
Jesus was the compassionate servant, always giving. In chapter 7, he rebuked the Pharisees. He cast a demon out of a young girl. He healed a deaf mute. In chapter 8, he fed 4,000. Again, he rebuked the Pharisees. He taught his disciples. He healed the blind man and began preparing his disciples for his death. Many people see chapter 8 as a pivotal chapter in Mark's gospel because from this point on, even though Jesus ministers to the multitudes, he begins to focus more on his disciples, to prepare them, to equip them, to strengthen them. His death is only about six months away at this point, and he knows that he has to prepare them for what's coming. So in the early verses of chapter 9, Jesus strategically reassured Peter, James, and John that even though he was going to die, he is the Son of God. They should never doubt that. Look at chapter 9 of Mark's Gospel, verse 2. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen, till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. You see, even though Jesus had told them he was going to die, it did not get through to them. So Jesus gave them this event to help anchor them through the turbulent times that were coming. And he continued to remind them that he must die. It was necessary, essential, that he die. Down in verse 30, Mark tells us, Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. They just could not accept the fact that Jesus was going to die. That made no sense to them. It didn't compute with them. That's one of the reasons why it was so devastating to them when he did die until he rose again. So Jesus continued to prepare them And he also continued to minister to the multitudes uh, as this, this time unfolded. In chapter 10, for example, he taught the multitudes. And at the end of the chapter, he healed blind Bartimaeus. Now, we just covered, hear this, we just covered about three and a half years in 10 chapters. Chapters 1 through 10 of Mark's gospel cover a span of three and a half years. The last six chapters, are you ready for this? 
The last six chapters cover eight days. Almost 40% of this gospel is devoted to a detailed account of the last eight days of Jesus' life climaxing in his resurrection. Chapter 11, for example, tells about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the cleansing of the temple, Jesus teaching in the temple that last week before he was arrested and condemned. The section on his teaching runs all the way through chapter 13. And in chapter 13, Mark records the second of the only two extended discourses by Jesus in this gospel. It's interesting to note that in chapter 13, Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple by the Romans in A.D. 70. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Mark tells us, Then as he went, that he is Jesus, as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. In other words, Jesus, look at the, aren't these amazing? What, what is your comment here? What, do you, what, are your, what are your thoughts about this? And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And of course, that is exactly what happened. You can go to Jerusalem today, and right beside the Western Wall, you can still see some of the stones, the very stones that were up on top of the Temple Mount that have been thrown down because they're still right there in the same place. God was going to allow that to happen because the Jewish people and their leaders rejected God's servant. In spite of all the good he had done, healing multitudes, delivering them from demons, in spite of all the proof he gave to back up his claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the Jewish people rejected the Lord Jesus and they saw to it that he was killed by the Romans. That leads us to chapter 14. In the early verses of this chapter, a woman anointed Jesus' head with a very costly perfume. Jesus said she did that to anoint him for his burial. Look at chapter 14, verse 8. Verse 8, she has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. On the next Thursday, Jesus ate the Passover with his disciples. Verse 22 says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Events are moving rapidly toward his ultimate act of sacrifice, or his ultimate act of service, his death for the sin of the world. He went, as Mark tells us here, to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And while he was there, he was arrested. Verse 43 describes it. It says, Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a sign or a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. 
Then they laid their hands on Jesus and took him. Mark records two of the several judicial trials that Jesus had. Mark tells about Jesus before Caiaphas here in chapter 14 and then before Pilate in chapter 15. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. We we read, Immediately in the morning the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. And you know what happened. Pilate caved in to the wishes of the crowd and turned Jesus over to be crucified. Verse 15 tells us, So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. After abusing Jesus further, the soldiers carried out the crucifixion. Down in verse 25, we read, Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Mark is using Roman time, which began at 6 o'clock in the morning, so the third hour would be 9 a.m. That is when the humble servant was nailed to the cross, 9 o'clock in the morning on a Friday. Verse 33 tells us, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That would be from noon until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. There was darkness because the servant was bearing your sin and mine. This is what he had come to do. We read his own words earlier in chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what he did when he died. He gave his life. He was a humble servant, yes, but he wasn't a victim of the situation. He gave his life. And then he was buried by a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 46 tells us, Then he brought fine linen, took Jesus down and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. But the obedient servant didn't stay in that tomb. Chapter 16 tells us that when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him very early in the morning on the first day of the week. They came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified? He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. God honored his servant by raising him from the dead. He was a humble and obedient servant, and he was raised a victorious conqueror over sin and death. And beloved, this is the way God works. He exalts those who are willing to be humble. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. That's one of the things Mark wants us to learn from his gospel. He wants us to realize that this humble servant, this obedient servant, is no less than the Son of God who died to take away our sin. Have you received his gift of forgiveness? Have you humbled yourself before the Lord to receive him and his forgiveness? If not, the gospel of Mark is just a useless history lesson to you. 
The Holy Spirit's goal in guiding Mark to write these words is so that we will recognize Jesus is the Son of God who died to take away our sin. Mark also wants us, once we have yielded our lives to the Lord Jesus, to follow his example of servanthood and obedience to the Father. Turn back to Mark 10 as we close this morning. I want to close with this story that Mark records from the life and ministry of our Lord. I think it's highly significant that Mark chose to record this event. Mark 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. So it's time for Jesus to take action. So Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. That's not an easy pill for us to swallow. But it follows the pattern of the greatest servant who has ever lived. And that is why verse 45 follows. Jesus says, for, let me explain this, let me illustrate this. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I hope you know this servant personally as your own Lord and Savior. Let's bow together in closing this morning. As we bow together in closing, I ask you that question again. Do you know this perfect servant personally? Do you know him as your own Lord and Savior? Have you humbled yourself before him to acknowledge that you are a sinner who deserves his wrath and judgment, but calls for his grace and mercy? If you have never done that, I urge you to do so this very moment, right where you are seated, right there in the quietness of your own heart. Call out to the Lord. Acknowledge to him your sinfulness. Humble yourself before him and ask him to be your Savior and Lord. And if you are a child of God through faith, then are you following the example of this one who is the perfect servant? Are you following his example of humility, his example of servanthood? That's what Mark wants us to see. He wants us to see that we need this servant as our Savior, and once we have him as our Savior, he wants us to see that we need this servant as our example, to be like him in the way we serve and in our humility. Father, please take the message of Mark's gospel to which we've been exposed this morning in an overview fashion and use it in our lives as you see fit. 
For those who do not know Jesus Christ personally as Lord and Savior, may they humble themselves before you this very day and call out to you for forgiveness and salvation. And for those who do know you, who do know your Son Jesus as Lord and Savior, may we see his example and mimic his example of humility, his example of servanthood, so that we would be like the one who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We pray in his exalted and matchless name. Amen.